Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. It's time to talk sports on Saturday here on ESPN 700. For the next two hours, we will cover everything from the Utes, Cougars, Aggies, and the Jazz to anything happening on the national stage. This is Sports Saturday. This is Sports Saturday. James Peterson back on a what's all of a sudden a nice sunny weekend we have here in Salt Lake City. Our Valley Collision Studios here in downtown Salt Lake City in the Broadway Media Building. After, I mean, yesterday was dark and dreary all day long, overcast all day long. We had crazy winds the last couple of days. And we had some sun the day before, but after the kind of winter we've had, it's just, it's been nice to have a couple of sunny days. Not going to lie. Uh, and I've told you guys before, I'm a St. George boy. So when, and I'm used to 300 plus days of sun, sunshine a year. So when it's, when you have an extended period where you don't see the sun, it gets to me a little bit. It still does. I mean, I'm getting a lot more used to it since I've been here, uh, up here about five years now. Um, but still affects me a little bit. So it's nice to see the sun on this beautiful Saturday here in downtown Salt Lake City. Got a great show for you today. Oh, yeah, and got to mention, I I tweeted this out on our station account, but for those of you not on Twitter um, and wondering what why you can't hear us on 92.1 FM, well, uh, I mentioned the wind and the power outages and those things. Well, it knocked out our our FM signal. So uh, for this weekend, just to be safe, uh, go ahead and tune tune back to the AM signal, 700 AM, if you're in range of that, anywhere in the state of Utah, basically. Or, of course, you can stream us on ESPN700sports.com or the ESPN700 app. So no 92.1 today. We're hoping to have it up as, as quickly as possible, but it may not be until um, start of next week. So keep us tuned to the old 700 signal on the AM side, and you should be good to go. Uh, loaded show, and uh, for the some of you might be might be like, man, this guy's on the air again. Yeah, I did three straight days uh, filling in for the boss man, Bill Riley, on the Bill Riley show. It was a lot of fun. It was Porter and I on Wednesday, and then Bartle and I on Thursday and Friday while Bill was down in Vegas. It was a uh, short work trip for him that probably just turned into a nice. It's probably just turned into a nice weekend getaway for him after after the running Utes fell in the first round to Stanford on Wednesday. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but man, it was a lot of fun filling in for Bill. That's the longest I've. That's that's the most days in a row I, I've been able to uh, host a show. Now now it's going on four days in a row here in the midday. Basically the same time of day, just a little bit shorter here on uh, Sports Saturday, 10 to noon. 
instead of 11 to 2 on weekdays with the Bill Riley show the last three days. Um, it, a lot of fun. That's that's what I I mean, that's what I'd like to do full time if if I'm able to fortunate enough to get the opportunity is 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 host the uh, host daily radio show so it's something i want to do for a long time uh so uh it, i got a taste of that the last three days and uh really grateful to bill for uh trust for trusting me to take care of his show and and hold the fort down while he was gone and uh, just really appreciate the opportunity to try that out man i'll tell you what though it's uh it's not as easy as you would think to have to to come up with daily content. <laughs> I mean, I do I do it weekly here, and I've got I've got a week to to kind of gather stories and and things that and events and things that I want to talk about. Uh, I find that much easier than the daily thing. I mean, it's it it's no. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it is just talking about sports on the radio. But as far as the preparation goes, that daily preparation was not not as easy as you would think. So uh, I have came, come out with a newfound appreciation for what guys like Bill, like Bill Riley and Spence Checkets do um, every day, five days a week, uh, and they've been doing it for Bill uh, close to thirty years, or a little over thirty years, I think, at this point, and. Uh, and Spence uh, getting close to 20 years. So I got a newfound appreciation for that. And uh, anyway, it, it was a blast. Uh, hopefully continue to keep getting those opportunities. Hopefully all of you enjoyed it as well, those that were able to tune in. Um, if you missed that, ESPN700sports.com, if you want to go check that, check out the podcast uh, or uh, the Bill Riley Show, wherever you get your podcast. This is not the Bill Riley Show. It's Saturday, so it's Sports Saturday. Going till noon today. Um, back in my regular role here, at least regular on air role. Uh, great show lined up for you. A lot to talk about. A lot went down yesterday. Of course, we're, we're right. In, we're at the end of men's conference tournaments here. The the last last two days of conference tournament action. We got a bunch of championship games today. We've got some semifinals and then championship games tomorrow uh talk to you all about that a wild loss for uvu last night man i feel bad for the wolverines but i at the same time really happy for the thunderbirds suu they are one win away from their second ncaa tournament appearance in program history first one since 2001 so really pulling for the T-Birds. And it's happy for them, but man, I'm bummed out for UVU. That was, if you missed it last night, they were up 23 points in the second half. Rolling. They they started the second half on like a, a 20 to 8 run. And it, and it ballooned even further from there to go up to get up to a 23-point lead, seven, up 17 with six and a half minutes left. That's when SU started chipping away a little bit. And at the back of my mind, I was like, man, man, there's enough time for SU to do this, but I just don't believe they will. And then there were missed free throws. SU cuts the lead to one with the under two minutes left. And then UVU gets a couple of buckets. At that point, I'm like, UVU's not going to win this game. But then they get a couple of buckets, 
they're up five, and then they miss a they miss a, a they go zero for two and a couple more trips at the line that that would have sealed the game, and then the four point play a four point play by SUU gives them the lead, and UVU a great look at the end. In fact, a wide open layup at the buzzer rolls off the rim. Just about as heartbreaking of a loss as you can get in in March. It, it, it about as spectacular a comeback as you as you see in March. By the way, the four point play, it was Larry Johnson esque, as in probably wasn't a foul. <laughs> and I know I know I, I, I made that comparison on Twitter last night. Uh and of course uh Nick's fan and, and a good good friend of mine, coworker, Porter Larson, <laughs> came out and said, Okay, come on, Larry Johnson was mauled. Uh yeah, I know that there's I knew that I was gonna trigger at least one Knicks fan with that. And it makes sense that it was Porter as well. Um as close as as close as we are uh working together every day. But uh I disagree. I don't think LJ was fouled. I mean, I think technically he was fouled, okay, but if you think about the way the game was officiated back then, that was 1999, and the fact that hand-checking was legal and encouraged, Antonio Davis didn't foul him, according to the rules of the game back then. And if he did, if you are going to call that foul, he was on the ground. Shouldn't have been a four-point play. But anyway, we're not going to relitigate... 23 almost 24 year old call <laughs> I just it just reminded me uh last night's uh game winning four point play for SUU just reminded me of of that a little bit in the sense that it was a bit of a phantom foul uh, and even more so than the Larry Johnson I, in my opinion phantom foul Antonio Davis on Larry Johnson 23 24 years ago even more so than that one because the UVU didn't the UVU guy didn't touch him. He swiped for the ball and the ref's angle made it look like since he reached he must have hit him. He didn't though. And it was a great but that being said, that's not why UVU lost the game. They lost the game because primarily because they couldn't hit their free throws down the stretch. And and before that because they lost they 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 stopped being aggressive. They started stalling more. And miss, they were missing some shots as well, allowed SUU, SUU to, to come back, get themselves back in the game. And then it was the missed free throws. It was, it was six straight missed free throws at one point with the under two minutes left, and maybe even under 90 seconds left. You make half of those, you, you're winning the game. And then even with all of that, you had a wide-open layup at the buzzer. And I know like it was rushed. He got it off like with 0.2, maybe even 0.1 left on the clock. Like he had to rush it, but still, you got to make a wide open layup. I mean, I just feel, I, I feel so bad for Mark Madsen's team, though. They, play, they have had such a, they had such a great season this year, and they played so well for what? 25 to 30 minutes of that game last night and the last 10 to 15 they just 
I mean, SUU just took over. And and they, they gave it away. And, and now, listen, SUU took it. But UVU also gave it away. Both things are true, in my opinion, on that one. Just a tough one, but congratulations to the Thunderbirds. Again, one win away from their first NCAA tournament bid since 2001. And um, the best chance at the state of Utah getting two men's teams in the tournament. So, uh, man, what a wild game that was last night. And it, it, it got done about... 11.45-ish. So if those of you that watched it on ESPN Plus or were like me, I don't have ESPN Plus, so I, I listened to the 960 call, Jim McCullough and Josh Kalunke, um and Bryce Larson doing pre-half and post for it. I, I listened to that, and I followed along on my phone on the ESPN app. I mean, that was while I was, while I was watching the uh, Utah State game. By the way, Utah State in the Mountain West Conference championship game as well. They they are in. They're securely in at this point. From what I've seen, they were they were the last four in before last night's game, and that's a good Boise State team that also looks like they're going to get in that large bid that they just beat. And a bit of a comeback for them as well. Never down double digits, but down you know seven to nine points. Or maybe it was 10 at one, ten or 11 at one point. But around 7 to 10 points throughout the first half, and then they just dominated in the second half to get that win. Um, but, yeah, watch it. I was listening to, listening to the UVU broadcast, following along with the score, and watching the Utah State game simultaneously. A lot of fun. Um, really fun game, unfortunately, for the Wolverines. Just on the wrong side of history there. And they're going there. They will be an NIT team, um, but they had they had hopes of being a tournament team, and they were literally one play away. Whether it's the, the four point play, not giving up the four point play, or even the, the game, what probably should have just been a game tying three pointer, making a couple more free throws, or making a wide open point-blank layup at the buzzer one play away from being one game away from their first first bid into the big dance first trip to the big dance uh too bad uh got a got a good guest list for you today we'll talk we'll talk conference tournaments a little bit more uh, and I'll, I'll spend some time in this first segment as well talking more about it but we'll talk conference tournaments and um, NBA draft prospects with our own college basketball and draft analyst, Leave Tulane, at eleven thirty. Always like talking. Always like talking hoops with Leaf, talking draft and and college basketball, especially because there's literally no one I know that pays closer attention to the draft and watch watches more college basketball. The guy is a true college basketball sicko. And and I love that about him. And uh, so we'll pick his brain a little bit at 11.30. Before that, though, really, really excited to have Kate Fagan on. You know her from Metal Arc Media. Before that, ESPN. She also played um, college basketball and uh, pro basketball in the 90s. 
not the WNBA, but but one of the uh, one of the other pro leagues that uh, there was another pro league that didn't last that only lasted a couple of years in the in the mid to late nineties there. Um, that she was a part of for a brief period, and uh, she wrote a book. You may have heard of it by now. She was on the drive earlier this week. I believe it was on Wednesday talking about it. It's called Hoop Muses. And uh, it's a it's described as an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game. And man, it it is such a fun read. So many great stories from the from the very invention of basketball by Dr. James Naismith, and then the invention of the women's game, which was vastly different in the beginning from the men's game by Senda Berenson in Massachusetts in the late 19th century, 1891, right? We know the James Naismith story. We don't know, I mean, I don't know that the Senda Berenson story has been told that often. And, and Kate tells it in her book, Hoop Muses, and she goes from there and goes all the way up until um, the women's game today, and both the college and the pro side a, just a fascinating history of the women's game, stuff that uh, most of it that I did not know, a lot of it that I did know, um, but uh, still most of it that I did not know. And it, it was It's a great celebration of women's basketball from a, a very passionate former women's basketball player and, and still uh, a women's huge women's basketball fan and uh, someone who is a – analyst in the media for basketball analyst in the media for metal arc media and espn in the past and kate fagan um so I'll, I'll have her on at 11 to talk about her book hoop muses and uh i i can't recommend it enough and we'll you'll hear more about it at 11 with when i when i bring kate on to talk about it um and again leap to lean at 11 30 uh, but for the rest of this first segment, let's let's continue the uh, conference tournament conversation. Uh, talked about the UVU loss. Oh my gosh! I I mean I could talk all day about that UVU game. That was just an unbelievable comeback, and just about everything that you could imagine could go wrong went wrong for UVU. Other than I mean they didn't necessarily. I mean, they had a good, they had a fair amount of turnovers, but they didn't necessarily. Actually, you didn't necessarily turn over the Wolverines as much as you would think in that big of a comeback that that happened in that short amount of time. It was an eight point game at halftime. It's not as if UVU was dominating the game throughout. It was really for a five to ten minute stretch in the second half that they were up double digits and looked securely in control of the game. And beyond that, it was a back-and-forth affair. It, I mean, SUU really played UVU even beyond that, and they, they end up prevailing at the end there. Um, but I mentioned they weren't the only in-state team in action last night on the men's side. Uh, Utah State, they took down their Mountain West rival Boise State. Boise State looks to be an at-large team as well. They look securely in the tournament, even with the loss last night to the Aggies. 
um, the Mountain West semifinals down in, at the Thomas and Max Center in Vegas. Uh, they'll play another rival in number 20, San Diego State, in the championship game today at 4 on CBS. The winner, of course, gets the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament, but both of them will be at-large bid. We'll get the at-large bid no matter if whoever loses will be in the tournament. But, of course, the automatic bid is on the line uh, to know for sure that you'll be in the big dance. Um, San Diego State, this is the third time of the last what, five years that they've met. Um, Utah State in the Mountain West, Com- Mountain West Conference Tournament Championship game at the Thomas and Max Center. It's becoming old hat. It's becoming it, – it already was a fun rivalry. It's becoming even more of a, a, a fun big-time big rivalry in the Mountain West because they – it's the. It seems like it's these two teams, year in and year out, always playing for the playing in the most important game in the conference, and that's the conference tournament championship game. Of course, um, they split. They've split the first two, and both with both with the current running Utes head coach and former Aggies coach Craig Smith at the helm. Of course, the. Uh, the second one, or was it the the first one, was at Sam Merrill, his his game winner at the top of the key, that uh, would have put that would have put them in the NCAA tournament if COVID hadn't have canceled it in 2020. Uh, a great moment in Aggies history. That's one that uh, my guy Brady Clark, big Aggies fan, and and uh, Utah State grad and former former producer here at ESPN 700 has said he's going to tell his he, he said that he's going to tell his grandchildren about that shot. It was an incredible shot, incredible game that that would have gotten them to the big dance if if the pandemic hadn't have uh, canceled sports, including the NCAA tournament. So that was that was one of them, and then the next year they lost in the championship game to San Diego State, a, a team led by Nemeas Keita. So um, that was the last time. It would have been the 2021 season. That was the last time the team, these two have met in the Mountain West Conference Tournament Championship game, and now they'll do it again. And San Diego State probably, I mean, they're, they're ranked. They probably should be the favorite in this one, but Utah State, I mean – that's a really good team. Talking about it with Bartle yesterday, filling in for Bill on the Bill Riley show. That's the best team in the state in on the men's side. And uh, so I wouldn't count them out against San Diego State for sure. It should be a good one. Again, 4 o'clock tip uh, on CBS to watch that one. And then let's see. On the women's side, so SUU is one win away from from securing that second bid for the state in March Madness. On the women's side, the SUU women are also in the WAC Tournament Championship game, taking on number one seed Stephen F. Austin. And so I, I looked it up. SUU, the SUU women have never been to the NCAA Tournament. They've only been to the postseason one time, and that was back when they were in NAIA school, which is just a, another governing body. 
for college sports. It's uh, basically, it's the level is somewhere between junior college and Division two, and not necessarily Division three either. Somewhere, somewhere between that level, there they're just it's not NCAA sanctioned. It's a completely different league, if you will, um, of college sports, and that was back in the eighties. The late eighties was the last time they made the the SUU women made a postseason berth. And they're one win away from not only making a postseason berth, but going to the big dance on the women's side. So we could have two men's NCAA tournament uh, participants from the state, Utah State, NSUU. Utah State feels like they're in. They've been a bubble team for a while, but it feels like they're in, especially with their win last night. No matter what happens today, SUU men need the WAC tournament championship to get in. Will not be an at-large team if they lose today. And on the women's side, we've got the Utah women, of course, top ten ranked team. Looking, they'll they'll be a number two seed more than likely. We'll find out for sure tomorrow on Selection Sunday. They are they are the best team in the state in college basketball. And so they're securely in. And the SUU women need a win today in the WAC Tournament Championship game over number one seed Stephen F. Austin. That game tips off at 4.30 on ESPN+. Plus. Again, winner goes to the NCAA Tournament. That's a one-bid big league on the women's side as well. Uh, and, and SUU has never made the women's tourney. So so the S, the Thunderbird men are looking to go to the tournament for the first time in over 20 years since 2001, second time ever. And the women are looking to make their first one ever. They could both be in it at the same time. What a time to be alive in Cedar City, Utah, right? The T-Birds looking to crash the big dance on both men's and women's sides awesome stuff um really like following along with with our local schools here the the more traditional teams the teams we're used to being in the tournament besides utah state um are not in it running utes no byu no byu women no weber state no on the men's side but we got the Utah women who could go to the Final Four, legitimately the best college basketball team in the state. What a year they've had. Super excited for to to watch them go. And, and you can hear all their, their tournament games here on ESPN 700, home of the Utes. And um, SUU, men and women, also in the running for the first time in a long time, if not ever. And uh, Utah State, just keep it. Ryan Odom, just keeping things rolling, picking right up off where uh, Craig Smith left things when he had a really good short run as the head coach of the Aggies up there in Logan. Also of note here more regionally that's uh, that top of mind, or at least in the 
the periphery of everyone's mind is the Pac-12 championship game, men's championship game, of course. Number four, UCLA versus number eight, Arizona. We're talking about UCLA wins this. They'll secure, they'll for, probably for sure secure the one seed in the NCAA tournament. Arizona on the two line, who knows, maybe could drop to three. I would think that they'd be a two seed in the, they're taking on, they're facing off in the Pac-12 men's tournament championship game. 8.30 tip for that one on ESPN from T-Mobile Arena down in Las Vegas. Uh, Got to head to a break. On the other side, though, some NFL talk. Huge, I mean, big trade went down. Number one pick was traded by the Bears to the Panthers yesterday. What does that mean? Who will the Panthers pick? Who would... Who would I pick if I were the Panthers? And uh, some Lamar. And what's happening with Lamar Jackson and Aaron Rodgers? Obviously, they've dominated the news cycle coming up here recently. Teams, I mean, we're coming up on free agency next week is when free agency starts, and teams tend to want to have clarity on their quarterback before their current quarterback before they enter free agency so they know whether or not they have to sign a quarterback and so the clock's ticking for Aaron Rodgers to finally make a decision with the Packers whether he wants to be traded or wants to come back and then what's going to happen with Lamar Jackson the non-exclusive tag franchise tag put on him by the Ravens earlier this week we'll talk about it next this is Sports Saturday with James Peterson on Utah's number one sports talk ESPN 700. Big day for NFL news. Big few weeks for NFL news. Of course, we've had the ongoing Aaron Rodgers stuff. I was just filling my producer, the original OB, Olivia Benyon, in on the old uh, darkness retreat stuff with Aaron Rodgers. And as I was talking about okay, so while it was happening, I was just so sick of it that I was like, I, this is not going to be a talking point for me. It can be a talking – if you want to hear about Aaron Rodgers and his darkness retreat and his his impending decision on whether or not he wants to be traded, which team he wants to go to, which team the Packers will will be willing to trade him to, you can, like, turn on first take, listen to ESPN Radio. Dan Patrick was all over it as well. The, the Pat McAfee podcast, wherever, where they can recycle the same information – over and over again for now what three months two months like if you if that's interesting to you you can listen to that I made the decision that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna really talk about it. I don't think it's worth talking about until we know for sure that a trade is imminent where he's gonna go when he's made his decision on his future right so the darkness retreat thing was just a was just an exhausting dumb storyline to me but as I was feeling Olivia in, I realized what a missed opportunity it was to get some cave sounds from YouTube. I'm sure there's cave sounds you can find. Oh, I'm sure. There's there's cave sound. There's all kinds of sounds you can find on YouTube, right? So I'm sure we could find some cave sounds. We could we could talk about just how enlightening it is to to sit in the dark like you're in voluntary solitary confinement and just how that's so much better than just going on a hike 
or camping for four days. For sure. <laughs> I think it's definitely better. I feel like we missed the opportunity yeah. to recreate it for ourselves. I feel like that could have been a good talking point. Yeah. Uh, so miss missed the boat on that. It's over a month old now. Old news. Um, unless you're a non-sports fan like my great producer. Yeah, I was like, that's <laughs> new to me, but okay. <laughs> hey, it's okay. Not every producer, ha- not every sports producer has to be into the daily, be a daily sports fan. It's fine. She does an awesome job and uh, filled her in today. And as I was doing that, I'm realizing, man, would have been, what a fun little parody we could have done to join in on making fun of Aaron Rodgers, a man who has just had such a social fall over the last few years, ever since he decided to pass off ivermectin immunization for being vaccinated against COVID-19. Anyway, I digress. Um, It's part of the Aaron Rodgers offseason story. It's still kind of part of his story now. We've been hearing tons of rumors about the Jets. He's been talking with the Jets. The Packers have given him and the Jets permission to speak, which usually means that he's going to be traded there because teams who have player control, unless they want to trade him to that team, will not let you talk to that team, right? So it looks like he's headed to New York. The Raiders were a team that were kind of bandied about as a as a legitimate destination, as one that he might want to go to five hours south of us in Vegas. Um, but that has increasingly looked like a less and less realistic scenario. They just we had Arjun Menon on yesterday on the Bill Riley show, Steve Bartle and I, when we filled in for Bill uh, from Pro Football Focus, and he. I asked him point blank, like, what's the most – where does he think Rodgers plays next year? Is he back with the Packers? Is he is he go to Vegas or is he go to the Jets? And he said – he said the Raiders aren't a realistic spot. They don't have enough um, – they don't have enough draft capital or good players to send back to Green Bay in a trade. They just don't. And also, they don't have – and that also means that they don't have a good enough team to go all in on – a still really good, still upper echelon quarterback, but also guy who's about to turn forty. You, I mean, you don't know how much longer that guy has at playing at elite level when they are getting close to the big four zero. So, you need to have a Super Bowl roster if you're going to do that, and the Raiders simply do not. Without Aaron Rodgers, they certainly do not. With Aaron Rodgers, they would have less of a Super Bowl roster because they'd have to give away what little talent they have around that quarterback position to go get him and draft capital. So it doesn't make sense for the Raiders. Uh, Arjun Menon from Pro Football Focus did a good job of explaining that yesterday on the Bill Riley show. Um. And so the Jet and, and the Packers just did you hear Mark Murphy say stumble over himself while he basically said we would prefer to trade Aaron Rodgers? They don't want him anymore. <laughs> They're done with this darkness retreat. They're done with the ayahuasca retreats. They're done with the non-vaccination stuff that he that all the circus 
that he keeps bringing on himself, they're done. As good as he is, they're done. So they're ready to trade him to the Jets. That, that's where we are with that. I'd be very surprised if he's not in New York um, come training camp. If not, in the next couple of days before the start of free agency. We'll see. This could go on for a couple of days. This could go on for months. That's just how these off-season things go. A lot of moving pieces as you try to make salary cap things work in trades, and you got you agree on what players and picks are going to be swapped. But it's it, if he's not a Jet, I would be floored at this point. Uh, but the big news that hit yesterday afternoon after Bardo and I signed off. And it was it was really funny because Steve Bartle asked Arjun, again, Arjun Menon from Pro Football Focus, what other storylines, off-season storylines are you looking at besides Lamar Jackson and Aaron Rodgers? And we'll get into Lamar Jackson a little bit here too and his situation. And Arjun said, I'm looking at what the Bears are going to do with the number one overall pick. I'm looking at them trading the number one overall pick. That was about 1 o'clock, 1.15? And then I think it was a little after two, maybe closer to three, that Adam Schefter and all the other NFL insiders tweeted that the Bears have traded the number one overall pick. Arjun Menon, on the pulse of everything. That, that, that was impeccable timing by him for us to have him on the show at that time and for him to, to say, this is happening. And uh, and it did a little bit after that. That was incredible uh, it was in, I'm looking at my phone. I'm like, well, there you go. And I had asked him, I had asked him if what Bears GM Ryan Poles had said about recently about we're completely committed to building around Justin Fields. If that was just smoke to try to drum up interest in Justin Fields, to try to trade their current starting quarterback and trade back in the draft. Or sorry, trade their current starting quarterback so then they could they could draft Bryce Young or CJ Stroud. And and he said, Yeah, even though even though we've seen GMs do that, use that strategy, this feels legitimate that they would rather trade the number one trade back by trading the number one overall pick and and, and select some some guys to uh whether it be weapons or, or shore up the defense or the offensive line, whoever it might be, um, to build a good team around Justin Fields. Because they believe, at least for now, they, they believe in Justin Fields. And, and to get some draft capital, capital for um, this year's draft and, and the next couple of years. That, that's what they wanted to do. And that's what it, turn, it turns out Ryan Poles was not bluffing. And they, they traded the pick yesterday to the Panthers. The Panthers had the ninth pick, so now the Bears will get that ninth pick and a second-round pick in this year's draft. I believe the number 61 pick in this year's draft. Plus, the Panthers' first-round pick in next year's draft, a a second-rounder in 2025, and Panthers' number one wide receiver, DJ Moore. That is a haul. For Chicago, I I feel like I feel like they Ryan Poles fleeced the Carolina Panthers with that trade. At least that's how it feels now. Now here's the thing: 
Panthers now have the number one overall pick. Frank Reich, I liked what what uh, Colts, ESPN Colts, and NFL Nation insider Mike Wells said uh, a little bit after the news broke on Twitter. He said Frank Reich is tired of not having a quarterback, and all those those last four or five years with the Colts, having a patchwork quilt at the quarterback position, he had enough. He said, "Get us the number one overall pick so we can draft C.J. Stroud." Or Bryce Young. Now, Bryce Young has been talked about by the Mel Kuyper Juniors and the Todd McShays and the other draft analysts, the Devin Jacksons, who we've had on our station the last couple weeks, as the number one, as the best quarterback prospect in the draft. I personally, if I'm Carolina, I'm picking CJ Stroud. And yeah, I have a bit of a bias. He's no, I was, he was, been the Ohio State quarterback the last few years, played really well with the Buckeyes, and I'm a, I'm a Buckeyes fan. So I've seen a lot of C.J. Stroud. Haven't seen as much of Bryce Young, but I've seen I've seen enough of Bryce Young as well to know. And I, I feel like Stroud is going to be the better NFL quarterback. Doesn't mean I don't believe in Bryce Young. I would, I would take Stroud, though, if I'm the Panthers. I don't know that you could go, you could really go wrong with either one of them. But I would go Stroud. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, another. We've got another what? Six, seven weeks to hear all the debates and debate which quarterback should go number one overall. We'll see who the Panthers like the best come end of April. We'll have the NFL draft for you here on ESPN 700 as we do every year via ESPN Radio. So that'll that'll be fun to watch. I I mean I I think the Bears made the right decision too. I I think Fields showed way too much last year, albeit mostly with his legs, not not as much with his arm. Um, but he showed way too much last year to for you to cut ties with him now. He's a spectacular athlete. He made some spectacular plays, had some great games, um, and really showed his first signs of being a consistent, really good NFL quarterback. He needs to now show that he can do more with his arm, throwing the ball, but I think he showed enough to say that it's worth it's worth trying to build around him for the next year or two to see if he can make those strides, especially if they're able to build a really good team. And you add a guy like DJ Moore, a deep threat like him, I mean, that's going to be huge for him. They're giving, they're setting him up for success. Finally, his first two years in the league, they they had done nothing to set him up for success. Now they finally are setting him up for success. Hopefully, they can they can get him a good offensive line. They can get him some more offensive weapons in in the next couple of drafts, and he can and and he can make those strides as a thrower and, and be that. Be a great quarterback that I think he will be. Again, my Ohio State bias is showing a bit because that's <laughs> Justin Fields was fantastic at Ohio State, um, but I really believe in Justin Fields. So I think it's the right decision by the Bears, at least here in the short term, and they got a really good chance of, of getting to be a really good team in the NFC North um, if everything pans out for them with these draft picks and uh, with Justin Fields' development for sure. Uh, a little bit about Lamar Jackson as we head to a break here. 
Um, Ravens placed a non-exclusive franchise tag on their quarterback and 2019 MVP, of course, Lamar Jackson. He still wants nothing less than what Deshaun Watson got from the Browns, uh, a five-year, $230 million, fully guaranteed contract. Ravens clearly are not willing to give that to him. Now he's basically a restricted free agent. So some of the labels confuse me a bit. Franchise tag, franchise tag versus exclusive franchise tag. I'm more of an NBA guy. So basically when I read, read, read up on this and realized that the non-exclusive tag just means that teams can sign him to an offer sheet and then his current team, the team that placed the tag on him, has the right to match the offer that he signed with another team or allow him to go to that team and receive two first-round picks in exchange for that player leaving in free agency. That's when I realized, oh, it's it's restricted free agency. If you're an NBA fan, the non-exclusive franchise tag, you're making that guy a restricted free agent. The only difference between that and NBA restricted free agency is the team who's letting him go, the most recently played for, will get two first-round picks in exchange. They don't just get nothing. So... He's basically, in NBA terms, he's a restricted free agent. What's interesting, though, is we this all happened at the Combine last weekend. So all the teams, all the front offices, all the coaches, scouts were together in Indianapolis for that. And all the NFL media as well. And, they, and the reports were that just about every front office has come out and said, no, we're not interested in Lamar Jackson. So that's really interesting to me. It's clearly a financial thing. I don't think that the Colts, for example, who were in the mix, they were the other team in the mix to trade up to get the Bears' number one pick, but failed to do so yesterday. I don't, And they were going to draft a quarterback, maybe C.J. Stroud, maybe Bryce Young with that. I don't think that they're not interested in Lamar Jackson. I don't think that the Raiders, who are also looking for a quarterback, aren't interested in Lamar Jackson. The Miami Dolphins, perhaps. Tennessee Titans. All these teams want Lamar Jackson. Houston Texans, another one. They would want a quarterback like Lamar Jackson. I believe they want Lamar Jackson. They don't want to be the team that has to sign him to a $200-plus fully guaranteed contract. Which makes a lot of sense. They NFL owners are desperate to reset the market that the Haslam's and the Cleveland Browns completely upset last offseason when they traded for Deshaun Watson and then signed him to a two hundred a five year two hundred thirty million dollar fully guaranteed contract now Arjun Menon was great on this as well yesterday with with Bartle and I he said that what makes that contract completely unprecedented is that yeah 
we've seen one other fully guaranteed contract for a quarterback. And, and that was, what, five, six years ago with Kirk Cousins when he signed with the Minnesota Vikings. That was, what, 80 to $90 million over the length of the contract, though, 30-something million a year, fully guaranteed. But what made what makes the Watson thing so unprecedented is that free agent quarterbacks or quarterbacks looking for extensions typically get between 30 and 50% of their of the money agreed to guaranteed this is 7 this is 50 to 70% more than that guaranteed what Deshaun Watson got and now you're asking now Lamar Jackson is asking for another team to do that when it's only been done twice before? Yeah, twice in the last five to six years. But there was a five to six year gap in between, or four to five year gap in between. Teams don't want to do that. In fact, they hate that the Browns did that enough that they're kind of, (laughs) at Lamar Jackson's expense, they're kind of getting revenge on the Haslam's here. By me, for them making that decision to do that with Deshaun Watson. And by the way, that Deshaun Watson contract, it looks bad just from that standpoint. And it's upsetting for the rich guys who are paying these guys, the rich billionaires who are paying these millionaires checks. And it pisses them off. But it's even worse because the dude has had or had 20, at least over 20 um, sexual assault, sexual misconduct lawsuits <laughs> on his name at that time. I mean, what an awful decision. <laughs> what an awful decision. I don't even care if Deshaun Watson gets back to a top 10, top 5 quarterback in the league like he looked like he was with the Houston Texans before all that offseason mess, before he made the worst choices. <laughs> And really disgraced his name. I don't care. That's an awful contract, and they really, they, they really sold their soul, their souls to the devil to get a guy like that to be their quarterback. Maybe it'd be worth it for him. Maybe they, maybe they win a Super Bowl and it'd be worth it for him. That was an appalling decision. And now Lamar Jackson's kind of paying the price. Uh, so uh, w- one thing before we head out, getting over time here, um, it was interesting that I heard is a, an interesting middle ground that Peter King, Monday morning quarterback, um, for uh, don't know if he's still with Sports Illustrated. But anyway, long time, was with Sports Illustrated for a long time. You guys know Peter King. He was on – Keyshawn J. Will and Max yesterday, as, as I was driving in, I heard him talk about a, a middle ground that hasn't been talked about much that he doesn't think Lamar Jackson would go for, but it is an it is a good theory middle ground offer would be a two year, a short term deal fully guaranteed. A two year we're talking two year, hundred million dollars fully guaranteed. Just to appease Lamar Jackson in the short term until the league and the Baltimore Ravens have calmed down about the Browns 
completely resetting the court or completely upsetting the quarterback market with the deal they gave Deshaun Watson. Then in a couple of years, maybe Lamar Jackson doesn't care to get a long-term fully guaranteed deal, multi-year fully guaranteed deal, because he already got the same market value just on a shorter-term deal. I thought that was an interesting idea. It's something I'm going to keep an eye out for. But admittedly, Peter King has said that it's unlikely to happen because Lamar Jackson seems very dead set on getting the exact, if not more money, and the exact same deal or something around what Deshaun Watson got. He feels he deserves it. I feel he, compared to Deshaun Watson, he deserves it as well. Um, He's a better quarterback, and he didn't allegedly assault and harass over 20 innocent young women recently. So, yeah. I'm I'm rooting for Lamar Jackson in this, but he may have to settle for less. That's what that's what it's looking like here. Got to head to a break. Way over time here, but uh, we'll talk a little Red Rocks next. They have their regular season finale tonight in Corvallis. You're listening to Sports Saturday with James Peterson on your home of the Utes and Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome back to Sports Saturday. ESPN 700, James Peterson behind the mic, the original OB, Olivia Benyon behind the glass, keeping things on time despite my ramblings, Uh, really appreciate her hard work uh, each and every week. Um, Talk a little Red Rocks as we close out first hour here, just got done talking a little NFL offseason. First segment, talked a lot about uh, conference tournaments. Congratulations to SUU men's and women's programs. One win away from a March Madness bid. First one since 2001 for the men. And the first one ever for the Thunderbird women, um, if they're able to win today. And Utah State as well. One win away from the automatic bid. They are they're pretty securely in the in the field as an at-large after that win last night especially. They were among the last four in before last night's game, and that was, a, I believe, a quad one win over a team, another team that looks like they'll get an at-large bid in Boise State. Uh, really impressive win last night. So congratulations to them and, and being pretty much in the field or being one win away from making – uh, the March Madness field rooting for the T-Birds, men's and women's today. Um, get them, get that, lock up that bid. But let's talk a little Red Rocks today in this segment. They're ranked fourth in the NCAA rankings. Their national qualifying score, or NQS, if you see that on Twitter, that's the national qualifying score. 197.805, just ahead of Pac-12 rival UCLA, who's 197.795. Really good score. Basically, you want to be in the top six to be in contention for a national championship. They're right there, pretty securely right there. They're 12-2 and two overall, but um, the lo- it's not like other sports where you lose and you drop in the rankings. It's, it's, the record doesn't matter, doesn't matter really at all. It's your score. It's your average score, basically. They throw out your... Lowest score, I believe, when they calculate that national qualifying score. And and so Utah could 
lose today in the regular season fa- finale, which they, I don't expect them to, um, and they could they could lose in the Pac-12 championship meet. But if they still get a high 197 or 198, and a team just a UCLA or something just somehow tops that, and, and today and the Beavers somehow top that in Corvallis, their NQS would still would still either go up or be maintained, and they would still be around the top four, and certainly in the top six. So that's that's how that works. Win-loss records don't necessarily matter in gymnastics. It's it's the score you get in each of your meets. So that great NQS, they're in a good spot. Um, again, season finale tonight in Corvallis against number 13 Oregon State. That's a good Beavers team, um, but one Utah should beat. They really, when, you, when you're looking at gymnastics – Things I've learned when, particularly when Michelle Bodkin was was across the desk from me um, last year as, as my co-host for a brief time before she went over to the dark side. Just kidding, <laughs> KSL Sports. Um, she had said that there it's basically the top six or so, and then there's a big gap between between that and the rest of the top twenty five. So that's. So when you see the number thirteen ranking, if you're looking, if you're a football fan or a basketball fan, you're like, well, that's still a really good team. That's a team that that could, at at home, that's a team that you'd expect to be able to pull an upset like that. But um, that's a big gap between number four and number thirteen. So Utah should beat them. They won't take them lightly, though. They they're ranked. For, Oregon State's ranked for a reason, and they're on the road. Season finale. You want to close out the regular season strong. Uh, but should be a good one. Tonight in Corvallis, um, but yeah, they're about a half a point better in their NQS than the Beavers, which is a big gap in gymnastics. Doesn't sound like a big gap, but it is a big gap in gymnastics. But going on the road is is never easy. We look at. Uh, let me get you the start time for that here. We won't have that one on the radio. We just have the home meets, and then we'll have the Pac-12 championships next week. 3 p.m. start time. I said tonight. It's today. You can watch it on the Pac-12 networks. Um, Pac-12 championships a week away at the Maverick Center. Get your tickets at pack-12.com. And we may. I don't know. I haven't heard anything yet. But uh, keep an eye. Keep your ear tuned here. It's possible. Sometimes we get uh, some tickets to give away to those kind of things as well. So keep your keep it tuned here to to hear if we have some of those tickets since it is going to be in the Valley at the Maverick Center. Um, excited for that one. That one will be here on ESPN 700. I went to it in person last year. Man, that's a lot of fun. Um, if you haven't had a chance to see the Red Rocks or any uh, gymnastics meet in person, that, that's a lot of fun. Those They are incredible athletes, and uh, it, it's even better in person than it is on TV and radio for sure. Um, on the other side, really excited to welcome in my next guest, uh, Kate Fagan, the author of Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game. She's a former women's basketball player at Colorado, brief stint in the pros, uh, pre-WNBA, and um, she's currently uh, with Metal Arc Media, got a podcast with them, formerly with ESPN as well. You guys know Kate. Um, really fun book. I will discuss it with her next This is Sports Saturday on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700.
Welcome back to Sports Saturday. James Peterson with you here on ESPN 700. Really excited to welcome in our next guest, uh, Kate Fagan, the author of Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture in the women's game. You also know her from uh, her podcasts on uh, Metal Art Media and her time at ESPN, uh, played college and, and pro basketball as well. Uh, Kate, welcome in. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, excited to do this with you. I I, I told you a little bit off air there that I, I read it cover to cover. Really, really easy read and really fun read as well. Um, just to start out, where did the idea for Hoop Muses come from? I'm not exactly sure why it popped into my mind. I remember calling my mom on a walk right after I'd had the idea and trying to talk her through what I wanted to do. And I remember her saying, well, so is this a kid's book? You know, because I think most people, you're like, oh, I'm going to do an illustrated book. They just immediately think like a book they would read to put it, put a kid to bed. And I was like, no, 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 it's going to be more dynamic and kind of art forward. And I don't know, I think it was just a, a culmination of my love of basketball and wanting and having tried over the years to tell certain stories from history and bang my head against the wall trying to get people to understand just the, the joy and vibrancy of the women's game and finally feeling like, well, maybe maybe instead of telling people that I think it's amazing, maybe I just do something that, like, looks amazing and I put so much care into it that, that they that they want to pick it up. I, so it was sort of born of that. I mean, there was a big, long process after that, but that was sort of the kernel of the idea. Yeah, and I, I've heard you, you've already done a few interviews, one one with uh, Spence Checkets uh, the other day yeah. here on our station. I heard you talking about how, kind of related to what you were you were just saying, how when you were with ESPN, um, a lot of the times they had you come on to talk about basketball. It was kind of the more negative, hard or hard-hitting uh, stories about women's basketball, and that part of the reason why you want to do this book was just to kind of talk about the joy that you get from women from watching and playing basketball as a woman. And it, it, uh, it really came through in this book as I read it. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's exactly right. I think I'd spent probably 10 years of my career only really brought on to talk about female athletes or women's sports. If someone had said something terrible or if there'd been an injustice or if They'd been slighted, which obviously happens more frequently than at least I would like. And so I, I felt like I was only really ever allowed to be bitter about things, even though I'm not bitter about, about it, right? Like, I don't go around bitter. I, I go around, you know, be- believing and, and loving the memories I had of, of being on a team and being a part of this sport. And I really just started over the last few years to be like, I'm kind of done with being angry about it I just want to be joyful about it for the people who who love it you know and and not worry as much I mean I can't help it like I'm still gonna like get fired up about trying to understand talk about the structures around our sports that impact things beyond just somebody's vertical leap like that's just part of what you know caring about it is but I think more than anything I was like you know what I'm going to write a book for people who, who, who love this sport, who think maybe they love it, and, and stop worrying about everyone who's constantly trashing it. 
And I, one thing I was curious about, Kate, is uh, you were a college basketball player. You played in the pros a little bit, as, as I've already mentioned. You, it, but you've also, you know, recently written several books. This is just one of several that you that you've written since you went over to the media side of things. Um, where did where did your passion for writing uh, start, and and how did that come about? I had always thought in the back of my mind as I was playing basketball in high school and then through college that I wanted to be a writer. But I also, I don't know if I didn't think I had time or room to pursue another endeavor at the the level it was needed, but I never did much about this feeling while I was playing basketball. I really only had room in my life for basketball during that era, which took me all the way up to probably being about 22, 23 24 when I stopped playing for what is now a defunct league called the NWBL here in the States. And immediately after I knew I wanted to write uh, and, and actually I write, I actually in hoop Muses I write about the sports illustrated cover of uh, the Yukon in 1995 when they won the title. That was like my first article I read when I was a kid where I was like, Oh, this is so cool. Like I, I, I would want to do this someday. So I knew I wanted to write, and but I didn't have a ton of experience. So I thought, I, you know, I started at tiny newspapers because I really needed to learn what I was doing. I didn't study writing in college, but that was always my goal. Like I wanted to write books, even though I knew, but I knew I couldn't just start out writing books. I had to first learn what I was doing. So I, I had mentors along the way. And then finally I wrote my first book. It came out while I was at ESPN, but that was kind of always the goal once I stopped playing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I always I always find that interesting when when people's careers take or post careers in in some cases take kind of a, a different turn than than you would you would think compared to their first one there. So it really interesting for me there to to learn that about you. But there are so many good stories in this book. Hoop muses. Um, what's your favorite story, or, or maybe what what are a few that that stand out to you? I mean, there's so many stories that I had never heard from the history of the game that when, even when I was trying, you know, putting the proposal together to try to find a publisher for the book, I, I hadn't even necessarily uncovered some of them yet. I, I'm kind of of the era where I knew a good amount of the stars going back to Immaculata era in the seventies, you know, then Cheryl Miller and so I thought I was pretty well-versed, but my favorite story from Hoot Muses is actually in the, in the beginning. It's about the first intercollegiate game that's played on the West Coast. It's the first inter- intercollegiate game in the country. It just happens to be played on the West Coast between Stanford and Cal. And it's played at the San Francisco Armory. And just the details around this game are so fascinating. And they, and they speak to what happens next in women's basketball, right? There's, if you try and picture this, there's nine players per side and the court's divided into thirds. And this is a direct result of just the culture at the time and how the societal pressure of a game like this being unladylike, just women who were involved in the game in those early days wanting to guard against the game's cancellation for women. So they're, they're, they're putting in all of these, what we would now deem, wacky rules you can't dribble it's all limiting any kind of physical interaction which would be so uncouth at that time and so this game between Stanford and Cal there's the 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 big newspapers 
out in San Francisco, they send all of their lady writers and lady illustrators because, you know, men cannot look upon the women doing this unladylike thing. All the spectators are, are women. Men are actually climbing to look in the windows because they're so intrigued at what this new game is and, and women playing it. And just everything around that game, you know, Stanford winning this first ever game, and they're obviously one of the strongest programs in history. But a, a few years later, the Stanford administration calls the game unladylike and that it got it, Stanford received bad publicity for it, which is probably a direct result of some of the, the write-ups of the game. And, and it's part of the kind of cancellation of the game in various levels, specifically at the collegiate level, that lasts for sometimes 60, 70 years. So that, like uncovering the details of that first game was just really cool. And it, there's just so many really dynamic factors around it. It kind of reads like a, like a movie, the, the visuals around that game. Yeah, that was one of the more interesting things to me too, Kate, when you're because you I'm thinking of Stanford now as a, a national power for, you know, a few decades now and yeah, it makes and I'm reading that like you just said it makes sense that Stanford would be would be part of that big first event there, but then to read that they canceled women's basketball right after basically and that it it took decades longer to get just to get it back was really interesting to me. This that perspective of of just how fragile the women's game was at the beginning. Yeah, and one, you know I was talking to somebody yesterday, and you know trying to share this idea, you know, and Hoop Muses is trying to link the original moments of the game, Naismith and, and Senda Berenson in Massachusetts, like in 1891, 1892, trying to link those first moments and, and bring you all the way through to today and, and then even into the future and show you that women were playing it pretty much throughout, even if in large parts of the country it was deemed unladylike or whatever other language you use, and trying to explain what that has done to the women's game. And, you know, somebody made the really astute point of, you know, when like major league baseball had its strike in the late nineties and, or, or like mid nineties and everyone was freaking out. Like, well, if you, if you miss baseball for a year, fans are going to fall off. And I'm like, okay, take that feeling that these pro sports have. Whereas if, if you lose a year to a lockout or a strike, how it impacts your momentum as a, as a league and then imagine being canceled for 70 years, <laughs> essentially, and how that stalls all of the things that matter in sports, like nostalgia and history and lineage and mythology. And that, that's kind of like my larger point about In Hoot Muses is trying to build back some of that history. And you had a, uh, a you know, women's basketball legend, a basketball legend, you know, period, um, help you with this book. The cover says she curated. She was the curator, uh, Simone Augustus. What mm -hmm. exactly was her role as the curator? Yeah, we felt like the curator was, even though it's kind of an overused word in vernacular, <laughs> in the art world, it's like an actual word, you know? <laughs> um, and so it's not like it, it's not like Simone wrote the book or, or did the research, but I wanted to bring on a WNBA star who had played at the highest level and, you know, no one argues. I mean, Simone's one of the, as named by the WNBA, one of the top 25 players in its history, has been won Olympic gold medals. And I wanted her on the book just for, like, to be able to run everything by her. You know, even 
some of the fun stuff we do toward the end of the book, like we reimagine the video game NBA Jam, and I, you know, we build out the graphics for players, which includes like two point, three point defense power bars, like simple things like that. Where I wanted Simone. Simone to say, like, I've actually been guarded by Sue Bird. This is what her defensive metric should be. You know, I just thought that that kind of, if we were going to label the book an insider's guide, I wanted, I really wanted an insider who in various chapters could tell me what the women of the WNBA throughout the last couple of decades were thinking in certain moments and certain milestones. And so I kind of leaned on her to chime in in those, in those parts of the book. Uh, talking with Kate Fagan, author of Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game here on Sports Saturday on ESPN 700. James Peterson with you here. Uh, just a few minutes more with Kate. Uh, we've seen, or you, you talk about in 2016, a pretty big moment in the, in the more recent history of the W. Minnesota Lynx players protesting police brutality that happened in, in Minneapolis. Uh, a couple of uh, black men were, were killed by police at that time. Um, and it was the first, it was the first incident of um, WNBA players getting involved in, in social activism. Uh, and then we saw a few years later in the, in the wobble, as they call it, the women's bubble in Orlando, the, the 144, that great, um, ESPN 30 for 30 uh, talked a lot about it, how they, how the WNBA players dedicated their season to Breonna Taylor and, and, and more police brutality, more uh, black people that were killed by police in the, in the spring and summer of 2020. Uh, the players did those demonstrations at, at pretty tremendous risk to the future of the league, right? Yeah. And that's another moment where, Simone being involved in the book was crucial because she was on that Minnesota Lynx team with the change starts with us t-shirts that you referenced. She was in the bubble season. So she had a lot of insight into, and she's, she was a part of the league in in the years before that, where whatever uh, might have come up that they, that the W players cared about, they had often decided not, to talk about anything that might be considered controversial because they were more concerned with just the foundational future of their league. And so I think one of the, in, in the writing of those different chapters, one of the things that Simone was just really trying to hammer home to me is that the key part here was that the WNBA players felt that the league was secure enough and strong enough that they could now really be their real selves and talk about things that really matter to them in a way that we never would have seen in, you know, the aughts, the early 2000s. And so, and, and even, and the, the risk they took, I mean, that, that, those Minnesota teams they, at great risk, I mean, the WNBA fined them initially and police officers walked off the job at Lynx games. So it really set the tone for not just, the, the wobble season and not just WNBA players kind of coming in, into their own about what their league wanted to be about, but just everything that extends off of that, which is they're asking for better treatment for now the discussion about charter flights in the WNBA it really sets this tone across the league that if they want to make change, they really need to be united in their collective bargaining agreements and, and all of that. And you can kind of see the, the seeds of that are, are, 
are sown in that 2016 moment with the Minnesota Lynx. And we've seen since the wobble, especially, and the new CBA that was agreed to around that same time, that TV ratings, social media engagement, all the numbers that track viewership and, and um, you know, engagement around, around the game have gone up significantly. Now, the old adage is correlation does not equal causation. But in your opinion, how much do you feel the players' activism and, and as you say, their, their comfort being their true selves has contributed to a rise in those numbers? I mean, I think it's twofold. I think one is not just, you know, not just their activism, their outward activism, whether it was like the say her name, but I think it kind of goes even deeper than that, where the WNBA as a whole in the first 15 years of its existence really ran away from its core audience. You know, like, you know, a lot of the women, the way they were marketed, you know, they were just kind of running away from any kind of other or LGBT fan base. They just didn't think they wanted to be associated with that. So when it's the women coming into their own, it's also recognizing who their core fan base is and then growing from there because any great brand, whether it's like a fashion brand or anything, they understand their core audience and the, and the things that their core audience wants to engage with. And I think the WNBA has finally understood that and now can grow from there and try to, touch more casual fans and introduce them to what the product is. And I think that there's also, you know, like you mentioned there, the, the bubble season didn't just grow audience ratings because it was attached to say her name. It was because also ESPN who has the league rights went from airing maybe 15 games a year to almost double that during the bubble season, because Sports weren't being played as much, so ESPN didn't have as much programming. They were like, you know what? We're going to put double the amount of games on the air. And it was sort of this moment where WNBA folks had been saying for years, like, put if you put more games on air, ratings will get better. And then the, the bubble season created this kind of Petri dish where the ESPN had to do that. And then it happened. You know, and then everyone was like, well, it's just because it's just because they put more games on it. And everyone was like, but that's what we've been saying, you know. <laughs> but, so it was it was a, it was a, a confluence of events that kind of led to that ratings increase. But we haven't seen that slow. Like every year since that bubble season, ratings have grown. Yeah. It, isn't it funny how with women with women's sports, for whatever reason, all these everyone who considers themselves like economists and, and these, these experts on ratings and things can totally forget the, the foundational rule of economy, supply and demand. And you can't have supply without the demand, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and it, anyway, it, it's just like a long discussion about just the limitations that have been placed on what people might want from women's sports. I mean, you, you, like you mentioned, economists. You talk to most e- economists, and you know if you watch, there's this great documentary on Showtime about the diamond industry. And like most people who are in marketing and PR, are like we just create the demand. You know, we we just put something on, or you 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 invest a bunch of money in it, and then you you tell people put it out and there, you put it on the air, and then people consume it. Um, you'll, you'll see over time if it's something they actually want, right? It's not a Furby. I don't know if you remember them, right? Like you can put a ton of marketing (laughs) dollars into something people actually don't want and you'll have a spike in what they, in buying it, but then it's going to die off. But 
when it comes to the WNBA, you haven't seen it die off. There was an investment made in 2020, and it, it's actually grown the game and stabilized at these higher levels. Now, uh, piggybacking off of that, talking about the 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 college game a little bit here too, because because it's uh, tons of stories about the college game, not just the W in your book, Hoop Muses. Um, what do you think is the more important to the growth of women's hoops long term? The, the growing of the college game or the growing of the W, or do you think it's something that that works hand in hand? I think it, eventually you hope it works hand in hand. I think right now the growth of the W is more important. You know, you you use like a, a case study right now of somebody like Caitlin Clark at Iowa, hopefully a name that your your audience is at least somewhat familiar with. Oh, yeah. A player who is very much kind of like the Steph Curry right now of the women's college game. And she mentions or kind of says that she would consider, because she's got an extra year because of, of the COVID season, that she might stay five years at Iowa. And there's no incentive for her not to do that because she's got a sold sold out arenas. She's now she's got name image likeness money coming in. And there's no reason right now, unless she was just really needed to prove herself immediately at the highest level to go to the, to, to the WNBA. So you want to create a system where when, when college athletes are leaving the the, uh, the NCAA that they're landing somewhere where they are elevated in all the ways that means their salaries and their monetary income is elevated, their cultural c- capital is elevated, prestige is elevated, audience exposure, and the W right now because historically the college game you know has the built-in infrastructure of alumni and all of the things we know about. The WNBA still has a couple more, a few more years to grow. I think, to, to even that playing field out right now. Well, Kate, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me here on, on Sports Saturday. Really appreciate, really appreciate your time. Love the book. Uh, appreciate the free copy as well. I, it's definitely mm-hmm. something that's going to be part, going to be in the bookshelf on the coffee table. Uh, I'll open up and, and just read some of these great stories uh, every once in a while about it. Tell tell our listeners um, what's the best way to, to find the book and uh, and how they can uh, purchase it. Yeah, I mean, if if, if they've got a, a bookshop, a local bookshop that they like to go to 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 get their books, then please go support those shops. If, if you're somebody who just wants it nice and easy and, and arrives the very next day, you know, we're always fine with an Amazon purchase. Just really want to get the book out there and, and so people can kind of see the, the artwork that we have that built that honors this game. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kate. Uh, have a good rest of your weekend. And, uh, yeah, really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Kate Fagan, author of Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game. Really a terrific book. Like I mentioned to Kate, I've already read it, read the whole thing cover to cover. Only added a couple weeks. It's an easy read, and you and if you're a basketball fan, you're gonna learn a ton of stuff that trust me that you don't already know, and lots of fascinating stories from both the college and the pro game on the women's side. Coming up on the other side. I welcome in Leaf Tuline, college basketball expert here at ESPN 700, college basketball junkie, really. We'll get his thoughts 
on uh, March Madness and conference tournaments and uh, look ahead to this 2023 NBA draft coming up this summer. Who are the guys that that Jazz fans should be watching in the NCAA tournament? And who should the Jazz be targeting as they hopefully end up with the top 10 pick this summer? This is Sports Saturday on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. About a half hour left here on Sports Saturday. James Peterson with you behind the mic. The original OB, Olivia Benyon, behind the glass, playing the hits. With you here in the Valley Collision Studios of ESPN 700, the Broadway Media Building here in downtown Salt Lake City. Beautiful day outside. Good to see the sun. Again, good to be above freezing temperatures for, what, three days in a row now? Spoiled. We are spoiled. Spring just might be on the horizon, uh, despite the the crazy weather we've had, <laughs> even with the little bit warmer temperatures outside uh, recently. Um, if you miss anything after the show, head to ESPN700sports.com or search ESPN700 Sports Saturday wherever you get your podcasts. Just finished a fantastic interview with Kate Fagan, the author of Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game. Uh, find it wherever you get your books now, your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It, it's, a, it's a terrific book. A really fun read, as you heard me talking about with Kate. Um, that'll be up on the website in our podcast a little over a half hour from now, after the show gets over. And... Uh, Excited to welcome on our next guest. You guys know him, Leaf Tulin, uh, producer here at ESPN 700, also college basketball expert, draft expert, um, part of the Locked On Sports Network. Leaf, you just had an anniversary with Locked On. Uh, I didn't even know it, but apparently so. Yeah, I saw. I saw. I saw Locked, the uh, the Godfather of, of Locked On Sports himself, uh, shouting you out yesterday on Twitter. Congrats on that. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a, it's been fun to talk about the draft and occasionally hop on and talk college hoops. So I'm always excited to do that with with them or with you or whoever. Yeah, and and honestly, I, I've said it before. You you watch more college basketball and and pay closer a little closer attention to the draft than probably anyone that I know in this market. Um, I know Ken Ken Pond's out there, but I don't know Ken Palm. I know you. So anyway, uh, so you're you're always a great guest for that kind of stuff. What do you think of uh, the wild game? Did you did you catch the UVUSU game last night? I saw bits and pieces of it, and unfortunately, I didn't see the ending live. But I've I've definitely watched the ending uh, on highlights and, and yeah. kind of went through the last couple minutes of the game. And geez, you can't write a better script for March. Uh, you got to feel heart wrenched for. Uh, UVU, but you can't be mad at that type of effort from either side. And a state of Utah team from the WAC has a chance to make the final. However, they've kind of cannibalized themselves as Southern Utah, uh, Utah Tech, and UVU are all on the same side of the bracket. So it's yeah. the last one standing. And, and what a play. And that's, the question is now, do you, do you uh, foul up three? And then I think a lot of people are going to be re- revisiting that train of thought. Yeah, and I mean, and they technically did foul up three they just (laughs) they just did it at the absolute wrong time um and also not sure he not sure they fouled 
Leaf, uh, looking at that, and maybe I, I may not have looked at it as, as many times as you did, as you have. And, and to be honest, I said earlier, I don't have ESPN Plus, so I was listening to the 960 call, following along with the score on my phone while I was watching the Utah State game on, on TV. But then I, I, I have seen the, the replays of that, the clips of that on Twitter a, a number of times. And I, I, every time I watch it, I'm like, that looks like a phantom foul to me. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, the intent to foul, though. Is, yeah. Uh, I think the, the ref may have in, uh, anticipated the, uh, the foul more so than it actually transpired. But it was executed poorly in that sense because it's smart to foul, but you can't do it when they have a chance to shoot or else it's a three-point shooting foul. Right. And, then, of course, he made the shot. And so the, I, I still think that's the smarter play. Analytics would bear that out, that if you foul up three and they shoot two free throws or a one-and-one, you likely win more more frequently than if they give up a three-point shot, but that's the worst possible outcome. And it's gut-wrenching that it was for UBU, a team that was 15-3 and three in the WAC and had a 23-point lead over uh, over a team that came back. And Tavion Jones had a big shot, and I've seen a lot of people say he's the best player in the state of Utah collegiately. And that that's a big-time player making a big-time shot. Absolutely. Um, what a wild game. Um, simultaneously, like you say, just, just – feels so bad for UVU that that's the way their season ends and that they they played really played as poorly as they did to give up that lead. I mean, credit to SUU for for taking it away from them, but it came with some poor play from UVU as well. Um, but also I feel that way and at the same time I feel I'm thrilled for SUU. This will be this would be their I don't know, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. This would be their first, their second March Madness appearance ever in program history if they if they win today, and the uh, just the first one since '01. Yeah, I didn't know that for for a certain, but I knew it was a fairly novel occurrence for them, and it, they, they've been an intriguing story all year long. They're not exactly easy to watch, uh, often on ESPN Plus, and and I have it, but typically when they play, there's bigger games I'm watching for the draft. But some some late tips and stuff too, and things like that make it harder. Yeah, too. they've always struck me as being very well coached, and so I'm happy for them. Absolutely, Todd Simon, one of the best coaches in the state. I am a little surprised that he is not. They haven't broken through in the Big Sky and now in the WAC in his tenure yet, but they got a chance to do it now. And we won't talk too much about this because I want to want to get to other things. But the women, the SUU women, are also in the WAC tournament championship game, and this would be their first ever uh, big dance if they if they can beat Stephen F. Austin, who's the number one seed on the women's side. So, the first time ever that we we could have the men's and women's Thunderbirds in the big dance, and and possibly multiple teams on the men's and women's side in, in March Madness. So, uh, awesome could be an awesome day for. Uh, for the state of Utah and college hoops. But, Leaf, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, some of the NBA draft prospects as well that will be, that are playing now in conference tournaments. Of course, we've got the Thompson Twins and, and not playing college basketball, but they're also top of mind as far as that goes. You've we, We've talked with you on, uh, on the Bill Riley Show this week a few times about uh, some of these prospects to watch that are that are playing college basketball. Um, Tony Jones has written about it. Andy Larson has written about him as well. Oh, did we lose Leaf? <laughs> okay, we'll get Leaf back. Uh, he, he got tired of me framing the question. He just wanted the question, I'm sure. 
<laughs> we'll get Leaf back here, get to get his thoughts on some college basketball prospects. Uh, some of the guys I've got, I've got the I've got a good list pulled up here from via Tony Jones from the Athletic and Andy Larson in the Tribune. They wrote about a lot of the same players. Tony, it's interesting. Tony was a little more optimistic, had more optimism about their NBA prospects. Andy was a little more skewing negative on it. Um, and and they're both fair it, for for good reason. Um, Andy's talking with with NBA scouts and front offices about what they think based on what they put on tape in college, and that has has left a lot more to be desired compared to their preseason expectations. And and Tony's just kind of looking – he's talking with those guys as well, but he's also looking with his own eyes and saying, these guys are still got a chance to be really good. Um, And and we may not not be able to get Leaf back, um, unfortunately. He must have have hit a bad spot here. Maybe maybe try again in a minute or so, Olivia, and then if – doesn't go through we'll just move on but uh um just some of the guys that tony jones says uh, should probably be available for the jazz if they get into the top 10 if they if they fall out of the plan and and get into the top 10 anthony black from arkansas his teammate nick smith at Arkansas, Arkansas has been been fun to watch from from that lens. Is guys that might be future Jazz players, and um, let's see. We have the you have the Thompson twins that I that I reference to, I reference with Leaf before he dropped off there. Uh, Amen and, and Osar Thompson, who are overtime elite guys. We won't see them in the NCAA tournament, but they're but they're doing some great things in the overtime elite. Um, Almon will probably be Almon will probably be too high for the Jazz to pick them. He he'll be a top five pick, if not a top four pick in the draft. But Osar, literally twins, right? They're literally literally the same body, um, and and similar skill. Almon seems to have better upside as a point guard but Leaf has said has told me that Osar I mean he thinks guys are overlooking Osar's point guard skills um making the mistake of doing that draft experts and things um he sees him as a guy who out of necessity has played another position played the wing because his brother is the point guard um but in the league he could be a, a really good point guard so he sees that as a as a uh he sees him as a really good pick, a lot better. Uh, he sees him as a lot better NBA prospect than other guys do because simply he's evaluating him as a point guard, potential point guard, while others are evaluating him as a wing who needs a lot of work on his shot. And as a point guard, you can get away with with not having the greatest outside shot. Uh, some other guys here. I mentioned Nick Smith Jr. Grady Dick from Kansas. Uh he has the look of the guy that the Jazz just like to draft. <laughs> you know, tall, lanky, white guy who can shoot. But he's also he that also comes with limited upside in my opinion. Not just because he's a he's a lanky white dude. He just that's his game. He has limited upside compared to some of these other guys. I would 
I would be disappointed if they pick him in the top ten. I'd be fine if they do it if if their pick falls in in the mid to late teens. You know, if they make the playoffs after making the play in. Um. But. Yeah, he he's out there too, and he seems to be a guy the Jazz, the Jazz uh, like pretty well. It looks like we got, we might have been able to connect with Leaf. All right, Leaf, we got you back. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened. I, yeah. my, my phone had some crazy issue. Uh, I went from five bars to zero. Oh my gosh! Just the, the Bermuda back. Triangle. I was listening to you on the radio when I was gone, though. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I've just been going through some of these players that uh, that that Tony Jones in particular and Andy Larson have written about that might be available in the top ten if the Jazz's pick go in there. We we've had con- I've had these conversations with you already. You've said this week that if that with that first pick, if the Jazz miss the play in or miss the playoffs and it falls in the top ten, you you think they should swing for the fences what would that what would that mean swinging for the fences what who are some guys that you would like to see them go after if they do get that top 10 pick the most feasible one that i i think would be a swing for the fences play uh he's a super athletic wing who struggles to shoot the ball and, and i heard you allude to this that that I think he can play the point guard, and that's why evaluations on him vary from people having him at four or five to all the way down at 14. And, and I think it's because people that evaluate him as a point guard uh, see him as a very, very high-ceiling player. People that evaluate him as a shooting guard see a glaring flaw. And so that would be the biggest swing for the fences, in my opinion. And another one would be Villanova's Cam Whitmore. Uh, their season is over. They, I guess they could take an NIT uh, invitation, which is very weird for Villanova to do. Oh yeah, that, he's, that is. A, he's a he's a six seven, six seven wing who's built like a freight train. Has unbelievable athleticism. Laps his teammates in practice on up and back. He's that explosive, and I think his shot is good. He just takes a couple difficult shots, and I think in an NBA spacing system, he'll have more space to work, and I think that'll behoove his game. Yeah, and we've talked about before a lot of guys. Uh, one of the knocks on Brandon Miller is he is you've you've told me that other and I've heard other draft analysts say is that he he makes difficult shots. He and he takes difficult shots, but is that necessarily a bad thing if he's making them at the college level? That means that he's going to be able to make he he's likely going to make even more difficult shots at the pro level, right? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to evaluate it. Some of it's the, the context. For, for Miller and, and like Paolo Bancaro, that was his biggest knock. He's like, oh, he's shooting bad shots. But it was like, if he can make them, you don't hate it, it but you still kind of want to coach him to take better ones just so you get the best shot possible. As for Brandon Miller and Cam Whitmore, I, I think for them it's it's a confidence thing, and I like that. If, if I'm drafting a top ten, I want to be drafting my number one player. So the fact that they have that uh, confidence to to say I can make this shot is is an important thing to me. However, I think NBA spacing allows for those type of shots to be less congested in the lane. So most of those shots are tough following mid-range jump shots, and those happen in the playoffs. But there's plenty of NBA games where a star player doesn't even shoot a mid-range jumper. So I, I think I think the fact that they can make them and, and are confident enough to take them is is a better thing 
than the fact that they take a few difficult ones, which, which I believe can be coached out. Yeah, I mean, we remember here in this market, we remember Donovan Mitchell, the stories of, of the veteran players like Joe Ingles having to tell him, keep shooting, stop passing the ball, because maybe he didn't have the that kind of confidence coming in. Now, he, he, he grew in that he developed that confidence uh, pretty quickly to the point where he was maybe taking maybe a little too many questionable shots down the stretch in games, but... It, I, I'm with you. I feel like it's better to not have to tell someone that they have the green light than to try to take the time to encourage them that, hey, you need to shoot more. Yeah, I, I think there are some players that kind of have this like team-oriented philosophy, and, and they come Which from is a good thing. Old, hey, we got veteran players. Yeah, and, and it is a good thing. Um, but they come with playing with veteran players and they're not an alpha dog, and it takes a while. And, and like Donovan Mitchell developed it quickly, like you said. But I think in the case of, for instance, Brandon Miller is, I think he's the best scorer in college basketball regardless of age, and he knows it. And I, I really like that about the guy that I want to be my franchise-altering talent. This isn't a guy that I want to coalesce and, and fit in with, with uh, my already established talent. I do want them to fit in, but I want them to be the guy that transcends my franchise if I'm drafting in the top ten. Does it always happen? Absolutely not. But is that the hope? Yes. So I'd rather yeah. draft for best player available and upside as opposed to potential. And and you see, fit, I mean. and you and obviously Brandon Miller's ahead of uh, Cam Whitmore, but you see Cam Whitmore as a similar type of player, a, a guy with that kind of upside. Yeah, I think Cam Whitmore is a little bit lower because he's not as refined. He's more raw, but I think his upside is certainly in the same territory as what Brandon Miller's can be. Awesome stuff. Well. Uh, Run out of time here, but I just wanted to get a, a general thought from you, and you touched on this a little bit earlier this week too, but I found it interesting reading both Tony Jones's article on this, on some of these prospects to watch, and Andy Larson's article, Tony Jones in Athletic, Andy Larson's in the Tribune, and they seem to have different tones. And, uh, Tony's was a lot more optimistic. It seemed like he still felt like this is a very good, deep draft with lots of potential franchise cornerstone talent throughout the first round and in reading Andy's it was more of a and his was his was more talking with scouts than than Tony's was and so he was kind of reporting what he was hearing but it sounds like a lot of front offices and scouts are are a little a lot more down on the the first round talent of this draft outside of the the very top because of uh what they what they've seen on tape this year that's that hasn't been quite as good as they thought it would be in preseason do you agree with that do you see uh, where are you with this do you still see it as you're pretty optimistic about these guys NBA talent or do you agree more with man they just have disappointed a lot more than I thought they would be than than I thought they would I lean a slight bit more toward Andy in this because I think the way the draft was billed preseason was like this is a, a franchise-altering draft all the way up to pick 15. And I don't think that's realistic regardless of the talent pool. It's just it's just so hard to have that many good players. Um, so I do think it's a little lacking in all-pro type of players. I think there's guys that if they find the right situation, they could be all-stars, but not perennial all-stars. And so I think this draft is deeper rather than star-laden, other than the very top. And so even a guy like Brandon Miller, uh, I think one of his better comps would be like Paul George is the, the splashy one. But I, I see like a bit of Danny Granger or uh, Chris Middleton, who are great players. 
But are they franchise altering in their own regard? No. Uh, they, they play second fiddle to better players. And, um, and so he, and he's widely regarded as number three or four. Could it, could they be better than that? Absolutely. Is a, is a guy like Nick Smith or Derek Whitehead or Derek Lively guys that got injured early in the year kind of marred this draft as well. Cause those were some of the top prospects entering the year. And so it's hard to evaluate them fairly with them not playing the enti- entire season. And that contributed largely to the hype train. So I'd lean a little toward Andy based off the tape that I've seen, but I, I think there is context that can explain it. Yeah, and to be fair, Tony's probably not necessarily saying that 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 there's as many All NBA guys uh, as we thought there might be in preseason. He he's probably there's a chance he's probably more uh, agrees with you with more with you and Andy on this. But I, it just had a little bit more optimistic tone to the article than Andy's did. So I found that interesting. And an interesting take on that from you as well. Uh, Leaf, thank you so much for uh, hopping on. Go back and I'm assuming you guys, you're still hooping with the, uh, with the old Twitter group. Get back out. There. No, I, I left, I, I left, I left that for the call and I'm oh. going to go to the jazz game. To produce it. So I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I got home. Now I'm going to the jazz game. Okay. Well, that's good. Sorry. The arena. Sorry to take you away from that. Have a good, <laughs> have a good time working no. the jazz game. No, absolutely. I appreciate the invite, and I apologize for my my phone issues, which I'm very perplexed by. <laughs> no, no problem, man. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You as well. All right, that's Leaf Tuline, college basketball analyst, producer here on and and draft analyst uh, here on ESPN 700, and part of the uh, Lockdown uh, Podcast Network as well. Uh, Lockdown NBA Draft. Been doing that for quite a few years now. Um, Got to head to a break here. We'll wrap up the show next, tell you what's going on in college hoops. Lots of, ho- lots of hoops action today and tomorrow as we inch nearer and nearer to March Madness. This is Sports Saturday on ESPN 700. Welcome back to Sports Saturday. Just a couple minutes left here, literally, <laughs> in the show. Uh, let me give you the rundown. Tons of college hoops going on as conference tournaments wind down on both the men's and women's side, primarily the men's. A lot of the women's ones were last weekend, but we got one in-state women's one of note as well. Uh, Coming up today, we will have the Big 12 Tournament Championship game. Coverage starts at 3.30. That's number three, Kansas, versus number seven, Texas, right here on ESPN 700 uh, via ESPN Radio. And then at 4 o'clock on CBS... The Utah State men versus number 20 San Diego State in the Mountain West Tournament Championship game. Um, 4.30 on ESPN Plus, SUU women, one of the few women's uh, conference tournaments still going. Uh, their cha- their WAC Tournament Championship game against the number one seed Stephen F. Austin. SUU trying to make it to the big dance for the first time in program history. Again, 4.30 on ESPN Plus where you find that. Jazz Hornets, you heard Leaf say he's got to go. Uh, to get to the arena to work that game. Uh, that's today at 5. Watch it on, e- on AT&T Sportsnet. ACC Tournament Championship game. We'll also have that here via ESPN Radio. Um, 6 o'clock is when our coverage starts for that. Number 13, Virginia versus number 21, Duke, right here on ESPN 700. And then the other in-state team trying to make – a rare NCAA tournament appearance, the SUU men taking on Grand Canyon in the WAC Tournament Championship game. That one tips off at 9.30. You can watch it on ESPN2 and ESPN+. And then tomorrow, conference tournaments uh, 
wrap up with the SEC Men's Tournament Championship game, 11 a.m. on ESPN. The AAC, that's the American Tournament Championship game, 115 on ESPN and ESPN Plus right after SEC one gets over. Probably, we'll probably see um, Alabama in that one from the SEC, although Missouri's uh, playing them tight here in the first half of the semifinal going on right now on ESPN. And then we have Selection Sunday, the men's NCAA selection show, 4 p.m. on CBS, the women's, 6 p.m. on ESPN, the women's one. That's where we'll find out where Lynn Roberts' team will be seated, likely a number two, what region they'll be in, what what their matchups will be, start times, all of that, as they host the first two games of the NCAA tournament up at the Huntsman Center. And then 6.30 right here on ESPN 700 via ESPN Radio, Knicks, Lakers little NBA action for you. Lakers trying to get in the play-in. Knicks trying to keep climbing up the Eastern Conference standings. That'll do it for me. This is Sports Saturday. Thank you so much for joining us. Give We'll give Olivia a few minutes to post the uh, full show podcast and our interviews with, with Leif Tuline and Kate Fagan. Uh, really appreciate them for taking the time today. Um, this has been Sports Saturday on your home of the Utes, Utah's number one sports talk. ESPN 700. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.